0: Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey.
1: And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with coverage of the recent vote on the city budget um, by the Albany City Council. Uh, then for our Peace Bucket, we hear about the role of fossil fuels in the war in Ukraine. Uh, we then have a report um, from the Civil Liberties Union uh, about government use of drones. After that, we hear about this weekend's upcoming People's Health Sanctuary, Open House, uh, December 3rd. And we finish with about the Blue Mountain Center in the Adirondacks. The first, Headlines.
0: The Times Union reports that more than a dozen teachers at a South Colony middle school who were secretly recorded in a staff bathroom by a former longtime co-worker are suing both the school district and their indicted colleague, who pleaded guilty to felony charges earlier this month.
1: This Sunday, the 40th Victorian Stroll will take place in downtown Troy from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Crowds bundled in cozy scarves and Victorian garb descend upon downtown for a day of shopping, food, and entertainment that culminates with the city of Troy's Christmas tree lighting ceremony.
0: Amtrak reports that its ridership has grown by 89% in the 2022 fiscal year, rebounding from significant pandemic-era lows and returning to about 85% of pre COVID levels. In the Northeast Corridor, which includes the Capital District, ridership grew 110%. Locally, the question of when service will resume on the Adirondack line to Montreal has not been answered. Residents also want more service between Rensselaer and Boston.
1: The Times Union reports that the demand for government food and cash assistance for low-income residents in New York has spiked recently to levels not seen in years. The rise in need is fueled by inflation, effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy and workforce, and the winding down of many pandemic assistance programs that helped keep some people fed and housed over the past two years. In a survey of the Capital Region's food pantries this fall, 83% said they were feeding more people this year than last, and nearly half raised concerns about having adequate funding or being able to source products. Uh, They also noted that people were coming in more often for assistance.
0: The Gazette reports that the search for missing Schenectady 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey continued Wednesday, five days after she was last seen in the area Schenectady's Riverside Park in the Stockade neighborhood.
1: The United States Senate passed bipartisan legislation Tuesday to protect same-sex marriages, an extraordinary sign of shift in national politics on the issue. The House is expected to pass the bill next week and will then be signed by President Biden. That's it for headlines.
0: Moses Nagel filed a report on the recent vote on the city of Albany's budget, where the big issues were the Civilian Police Review Board and helping tenants who are facing eviction.
2: On November 21st, the Albany Common Council voted to approve a city budget for 2023. After a public comment period again, which was dominated by community members asking for more funding for the Community Police Review Board, the council took up the final debate. Sonia Frederick, who served as the finance chair, began the discussion.
3: We've done a lot. We've had over 10 meetings, two public hearings, and a number of public comments from our residents. Uh, diving into this budget in its totality. We need to be proud of what we have done today. What we have done is provide a transparent and thorough review process to the city's budget to ensure that our municipal dollars are spent in a way that is fair, that is equitable, and that is accountable. This process has not been easy. We've really dug into each department's budget and questioned uh, items to make sure that we had a full understanding of the figures presented to us and to make sure that we were comfortable with those funds being expended. The administration put forward a budget that already included an increase to our real property taxes to our residents and that is something that should not be taken lightly as any increase to real property taxes is disproportionately impacted by our city residents. With that we have some really notable amendments that I do want to highlight for tonight. First we have 100k in contingency going towards the Eviction Prevention and Intervention Collaborative to ensure that our tenants of the highest need will receive legal assistance. This is contingent upon partnership with our uh, counterparts in government's Albany County. We also have 50K going towards a Violence Prevention Subject Matter Expert for the Violence Prevention Task Force. Something that we've been fighting for for over two years now since the creation of the task force has stemmed from the equity agenda and something that will really put us in the right direction towards coming up with recommendations and implementing changes so that we can reduce the violence we see here in our city. We also have 172,000 additional going towards the Community Police Review Board. While we received a large request What we have done is provided more than the 1% that was in the proposed budget. That 172 is inclusive of a consultant fee of 145 and 27K for member stipends. And finally, we've been able to really think about future councils and future administrations and make sure that we've implemented safeguards to ensure that the new pay scales that have been added will not be potentially misused in the future. These pay scales are a great step Um, for our city to ensure that we can be competitive in the labor market, but we cannot take that for granted and we must ensure that we have mitigation factors in, in place to reduce the risk that comes with that.
2: Many council members who spoke expressed frustration with the budget process, but agreed to support it anyway, including the sixth ward's Gabriel Romero.
4: I originally had a kind of like long speech for tonight, one that's like much more like scathing and extremely upset and like very critical of this process. And I think it's like of no surprise to this body that I've been extremely upset and critical with the way that the CPRB has been handled within this body, within the city, frankly, like from the beginning of this year as we've gone through budget, but really most importantly, earlier this year as they were fighting within the city for money that was already allocated to them. However, I come today with a little less anger in that the CPRB themselves have come before us to say that they understand what has been given to them and that they will make do. And I think that that's very kind and righteous of them to make that neutral statement. But like the reality is that they need $2 million to function along with CPRBs and other comparable jurisdictions. And then they modified that $2 million request to request $1 million to like make it work with us. That being said, the CPRB will continue. It will persevere with the minimal allotments that were given to them. Um, but I want us all to really remember that like, when we had this public meeting, every single member that was present in this council was like, I support you. I fully support the CPRB. We are unwavering, and we are with you. And so I am here to ask everyone to continue that unwavering support when they ask for more money next year so um, while I'm really upset with this compromise that we've made um, I still do feel inclined to support this budget even though I am extremely upset and and mostly it's because of this program that the city we're only even giving like hundred thousand dollars which is really not even that much but we're funding this EPIC program which I think will have massive and kind of unbelievable uh, implications on people in this city to have an attorney present in housing court just to say, like, hey, you have this defense. And I don't think people understand the actual implications of that, which is that that one, that attorney that just says like an obvious thing to them because they're an attorney, that defense in housing court will actually prevent people from being evicted.
2: Oasi Anane from Ward 10 raised similar frustrations.
5: It's no secret, the city of Albany is facing a housing crisis with a number of evictions, and I know we have the resource to do more. The city is flush with cash, don't be fooled. The state is flush with cash, don't be fooled. And we need to establish the right to counsel for tenants facing eviction and provide the resource to hire attorneys to assist in this effort. You know, some people, when they're losing their freedom, they have a a right to an attorney. And I think that when you're losing your apartment, you should also have a right to an attorney. Finally, what, what, what concerns me the most in this budget includes language regarding pay raises in which the council is unable to have input on and consent to. We have what is called a strong mayoral control system of government. But collectively, we are supposed to be a co equal branch of government to serve as a check on the ability of the executive to do the right thing, and not just to allow them to do anything they wish, especially when it comes to tax taxpayer money. Our constituents did not elect us to just approve anything the mayor puts on our desk. Any effort to dilute the council power is a disservice to the democratic government that our city is supposed to be.
2: Megan Keegan reminded supporters of the initiative to provide legal aid to tenants facing eviction that the county had to approve their share of the money for it to work.
6: So while we have put this money uh, towards this project without action from the county legislature, this project will not go forward and will not be funded by the city of Albany. Um, Secondly, I would like to sort of address some of the things that have been said and alleged with regards to Um, the CPRB funding, I have never uh, advocated for the police department to investigate itself uh, when complaints have been made against the police department. I did, however, conduct a significant amount of research into community police review boards, and that research uh, led me to have a very critical look at our current model of police oversight um, and the potential impact that having multiple investigations could have on the public's faith in our ability to actually do police reform here in the city of Albany. The research that has been conducted by NACOL, which is the Oversight Board and the partnership and national partnership that the CPRB has on police reform throughout the country, in its assessment of the various models that can potentially be implemented on police oversight, has demonstrated that the model that was enacted under Local Law J while being the most expensive um, way to implement police oversight is not necessarily always the most effective and has shown that due to some of the structural issues around the length of investigations and the lack of ability to bring forth significant change in policing, that the community faith in those oversight boards has waned over time.
2: Second Ward Councilman Derek Johnson was the only no vote against the budget.
5: You have to know that we're watching, we're listening, and you know what? There's a lot more people paying attention to what goes on in here than you actually know. So if you're okay with this, I guess this is just how, how it's going to be. But I'm asking that people send a message that, you know, um, this is not right. Our people and our communities deserve better. And not to be bullied, not for their arms to be turned and twisted, each time we come to this process, it's the same thing all over again. And I think our community deserves better. Ballarin, Yes.
6: Clark. Yes. Farrell. Yes. Flynn. Yes. Frederick. Yes. Hoey. Yes. Johnson. No. Keegan. Yes.
2: Reporting for Hudson Timber. Mohawk Magazine, yes. this is Moses Nagel.
6: Zamer. Yeah. Yes.
5: 14 in the affirmative, one no vote.
1: Ordinance passes. So I, I will just note that uh, despite that sparring in the city of Albany, every single elected official in Albany are Democrats, which is not the case in the city of Troy. And in fact, on Wednesday night, the city of Troy is adopting its city budget. Uh, we hopefully will have an update on that. They seem to be sparring over the size of the they $33 tax increase for uh, garbage, and they seem to be fighting over how many vacancies to fill. What is interesting is that the Republicans want to keep some of the firefighter positions vacant, but then they want to add on more firefighting positions. So, not, so we hope we'll have updates on that in the future.
0: Very interesting. Yes, hopefully we will have that update. And next, we have our peace bucket. And this week we hear from Mary Finnerin about the role that fossil fuels are playing in the conflict in Ukraine.
1: We're joined today by Mary Finnerin, who is a, a member of Bethlehem's Neighbors for Peace, but uh, she's joining us today, uh, speaking on her own behalf. And we've had a lot of uh, discussion over the last six months or so about the uh, the war in the Ukraine. But one issue that has is continuously popped up is the role that fossil fuels are, are playing there. And in fact, just recently, some of the officials of the United Nations uh, raised concerns uh, about how um, the United States was uh, actually using the uh, conflict in order to uh, help out U.S. gas companies with prices. So, so Mary, what's your perspective on the issue of um, how does fossil fuels uh, factor into this uh, conflict in Ukraine?
7: I'm really happy you brought up the UN. It takes one point off that I don't have to mention again. Um, But the UN mentioning it, I think, is absolutely true. When thinking about this, I was thinking, I remembered 9-11 and how that was used to push the war in both Afghanistan and then Iraq um with the totally false connection to no weapons of mass destruction and how much the oil and gas industry profited at that time um halliburton profited over 39 billion from that war and while iraq still profits from some of their oil the oil and gas industries definitely got their claws in there and are profiting um which was part of the whole ploy there um the Ukrainian war is not dissimilar, except that we are reaping the profits without the military sending soldiers. Um, we send support being advisors, tanks and weaponry. Um, and we are benefiting from uh, their need for natural gas, which was stopped, uh, which the Russian uh, was providing them and we were stopped. There's a lot more I'll say on that. So. Anyway, I hope that uh,
1: gives my stance. I'll just note that there was an article in the Washington Post a couple of days ago um, that Congress, particularly the Republicans, are going to want an investigation. What exactly is happening with the $20 billion that the United States has sent over to the Ukraine? Because usually in these type of wars, um, uh, a lot of the arms actually get sold on the black market and end up being used against uh, America. Uh, and its allies, and it was interesting the Pentagon responded, well, yes, we should think about where that $20 billion go, but just be aware that usually we can't figure out where our resources are, okay. um, and that's in the best case circumstances. But you you mentioned like liquefied natural gas. W- what has that role been playing recently with the okay. Ukraine?
7: Okay. Um, well, you know that the it's uh, the Nord Stream pipeline had a huge breach and we were stopping, t- encouraging or telling the Ukrainians and the Europeans to stop using Russian gas. Um, and so Biden promised back in March or April, very close to the same time that negotiations were starting between the Russians and the Ukrainians, at the same time Biden promised Europe and um the Ukraine are liquid natural gas, um, which is is kind of you know it was um, so they promised that, and meanwhile for some reason Zelenska pulled out of the negotiations. Not sure what that point is there, but there are now ten LNG exports here and ten import ports in Europe, which are not fully operational yet. But LNG is much more involved. Um, in regards to producing GHG than the Nord Stream pipeline would have been before this breach. I mean, that's the huge, biggest breach in ever of natural gas. Um, they have to first, they liquefy the frack gas, then they transport it by ships with all of the fuels used there, then the vaporizing and the piping of the gas in Europe. So it is huge regarding um, how much Um, greenhouse gases, GHG, if you will, um, is being produced. Um, Before the war, the fossil fuel companies were tanking, um, and now they're having huge profits. But let me let you ask another question here, because I think I'm getting beyond that.
1: Well, uh, I mean, one of the things that we talked about, you had mentioned previously, is that uh, Jill Stein, former uh, Green Party presidential candidate, and I should mention I, managed her 2016 presidential campaign. Um, she was involved in some
7: webinar recently, and she was raising
1: uh, this issue. Were there a couple key points that you
7: thought would be worth sharing? Well, I, I one of the key points was that the, uh, the Nord Stream was the hugest breach, and she also mentioned all of the other climate catastrophes that are happening and how all of this war will add to it, how the, you know, the um, the melting in the arctic rain in the arctic for the first time um and these are things that we have to stop and not perpetuate with the liquid natural gas she said that all of this is war is unacceptable unsustainable unsurvivable system for the elites both she and noam chomsky have stated that the natural gas profits and the weapons profits are behind the perpetuation of this war, which is what I truly believe. And I was gratified to hear that because I've been saying that for a while. Um, she She's an amazing woman. She knows her stuff and she is really, um, in that webinar, she was feeling quite gratified that other people in the room were kind of agreeing with her because a lot of us are you know, feeling, guilty because we're not like sitting there saying let's support the ukrainian people i contend that 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 our biggest support is to stop this push of the oil and gas industry and and get them out of there but um that's she's a, a hero of mine i'm finally joining the green party this week mark just to let you know
1: you know when the the war initially broke out and it was clear from the start that uh access to gas from russia was one of the you know, points that Russia was using to try to leverage, you know, Europe to, you know, not, uh, you know, aggressively back the Ukraine. You now, one of the things a lot of climate activists in the United States pointed out, like Bill McKibben and, and some of the leaders over in Europe, like uh, Greta Thornburg, was this is just another signal to the world that we needed to immediately, you know, end our dependence upon uh, fossil fuels, natural gas, which is, after all, fossil fuel, and immediately speed up, um, you know, conversion to 100% renewable energy. That has not seemed to really have occurred, despite it making a lot of logical sense.
7: Oh, and it's, and it's really sad. And I think that the propaganda machine has been huge. Um, they, they are, there has been some push, and some people recently on a call, I'm also on the Sierra Club Gas Action, Team and on a call today, they were saying that it is pushing for the renewables. I say that with the amount of money that we're sending and spending for the LNG ports, for the export and and all of that infrastructure, we could just send heat pumps, you know, air sourced heat pumps. And even though they would have to use, um, you know, maybe some fossil fuels to power them for the while, or even, God forbid, nuclear, at least it would be less than building all of this huge infrastructure in Europe um, for liquid natural gas, which has got to be on its way out. Um, I'm not sure if I really answered your question there, but it's, it's something that um, we really have to stop. Um, the military budget is about two-thirds of the entire discretionary budget when you include the VA and the energy budget section on nuclear weaponry. Believe it or not, nuclear weapons are in the energy budget, um, which is, you know, um, anyway, about a trillion dollars all told. And the mansion deal, um, the inflation reduction act, climate act, provides about 3 billion to fight climate. So you look at 1 trillion versus 3 billion, and Biden keeps on saying we have to, you know, do climate things. And then he's pushing for LNG ports.
1: Well, I mean, one and we're about out of time. But one interesting thing was it was when the Kerry and Biden showed up at, you know, COP 27. They thought everybody would be cheering wildly for them because they passed the IRA, the biggest investment ever in American history in renewable energy, and they were not well received. And uh, in fact, the United States still view it as the big uh, climate culprit on the planet, even though you yep. know China is now the largest emitter. Uh, very quickly. Um, Mary, if people want more information on Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace, how best to do that?
7: We've a website, um, BethlehemNeighborsforPeace.org. All- it has
1: been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So we'll continue to to follow the story, obviously, in Ukraine. I, I've i been watching uh, The Daily Show more recently because Trevor Noah is about to step down. And so a couple of nights ago, he had a story that the most recent... Um, order the pentagon um of the 3.5 trillion dollars of assets they have uh they could not find over 2.1 trillion of that 3.5 trillion uh and i tried to find any in the mainstream media had covered it and for some reasons they have not but we're going to try to get somebody on in a future edition here at the media sanctuary to cover this not breaking story
0: for those of you just tuning in i'm cena bazila
1: And I'm Mark Dunley. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the beautiful sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York.
0: If you like what you hear, sharing is caring. You can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Melanie Trimble and Jason Schwartz joined Elizabeth Press to talk about New York Civil Liberty Union's new report on government drone use in New York State.
8: The New York Civil Liberties Union released a report called Praying Eyes, Government Drone Data across new york highlighting the increased use of drones owned by new york state agencies and the need for legislation today i'm joined by melanie trimble regional director of the nyclu capital region and daniel schwartz nyclu's senior tech and privacy strategist to talk about this report welcome both of you to the hudson mohawk magazine
9: thanks for having us
8: yeah thank you for writing this report and collecting this data uh, Melanie, I was just wondering if first you could highlight some of the key takeaways that, you know, our audience should know about from this report. What, what do you dive into here? Particularly, we were surprised at how many active
9: drone registrations were submitted, and there are over 530 in the state and over 85 different New York government agencies. And these drones for their use are completely unregulated. And so it's of great concern to us because there are many uh, privacy concerns linked to this. And also if law enforcement is using these drones, we certainly would like to know what their practices and policies are so that we can ensure that they're not spying on Americans during first amendment activities. That they're not using or storing the information in an improper way we don't have any access to that information so we think it's very important that we get local agencies aware of the fact that the public is not informed about the policies and plus to support some state legislation that would in fact regulate it so that we know and that there's transparency between law enforcement agencies that are using this equipment and the people And there are also some other agencies that are using them, and we certainly would like to know what their intentions of use are, certainly be able to inform the public when they go outside and they see something buzzing around, you know, to know what it is and and where they can get the information that's been gathered.
8: Now, before we dive a little bit deeper into the findings of this report, I know you filed the Freedom of Information Act or FOIA requests for much of the data that you used to write this report. But could you just give us a little bit more detailed of what that means and how you sort of synthesize the information that you collected here?
10: Yeah, so, so we're following um, a similar request that the ACLU of Massachusetts had submitted in their state. The neat advantage of their request was instead of going to the individual entities and submitting hundred possibly hundreds of requests individually, the Federal Aviation Administration holds all registrations of drones. And so with a single request, we could access all the registrations across the state um, and then highlight and identify which agencies hold how many drones and which drones they are. So we got the and models. We got the dates when they were registered and we made all those data available on the website. So anyone can download the spreadsheet, have a look at themselves. We did some visualizations on the website, but um, anyone is welcome to have a look at the raw data. And also, hopefully, it will inspire people in other states to submit their own requests to get a more comprehensive picture, really, of how widespread they are across the nation.
8: Thank you for that, Daniel. You know, I was looking at the map of New York State, and there is such a concentration of drones here in the Capital Region. I saw that the New York State police had like some 126 or so drones. Why so many here? The
9: state police headquarters being so close to our area, and also the Albany County Sheriff's Department has been deploying drones for a few years now, and I think they've increased their use. Daniel, do you have more to add to why the capital region has such a high concentration?
10: Of course, certain state agencies that are headquartered there, but there's also numerous local agencies that have procured drones and are using them, and in many instances, they have not published that they are. They have not disclosed any policies. And even if they would, because we're lacking the guardrails, um, nothing would stop them from changing their policies at any time, which is um, why it's so important uh, that we are passing legislation to put guardrails around certain use cases where we see specifically harms arise and where people's civil rights and civil liberties could be impacted.
8: I was wondering if you could go into that part a little bit further about the impact on people's civil rights and civil liberties. I know in your report, you talk a bit about the possible misuses of the drones by police.
9: Yeah, well, the main concern is that when large groups gather, law enforcement tends to want to use them in order to do some crowd control. And and that's inappropriate in a, a First Amendment situation. So we'd like to see some limitation placed upon the police department when using that. People also should be very aware that when they see a drone, that their activity is being recorded and they should know where they can go in order to know exactly who controls that drone. But that's not in the policies that we know of. It's definitely transparency between the law enforcement agencies and the public that would assure the public that they're not being used inappropriately and also put some some limitations on the on police department use of this. Also the technology is of concern because we know that that drones do have capabilities to um, use facial recognition and other technology that is extremely invasive into personal privacy and can be used in a very discriminatory manner. So we wanna make sure that these entities are regulated and that there's some oversight for the use of them because if you run into criminal activity, You know, how much is going to be constitutionally valid in courts? And we want to make sure that, of course, the rights of individuals are protected over the rights of the police departments.
8: And are there examples that you can point to of how maybe the police have overstepped this boundary of monitoring with such tools as drones
10: We've seen, especially in the 2020 protests against um, police brutality and for racial justice, um, Black Lives Matter protests were specifically targeted by aerial surveillance. We've seen DHS and IS deploying predator drones, so military hardware during protest activities. A report by the ACLU of California highlighted how racial justice protests over there were targeted by aerial surveillance all over the state, so it was not limited to a particular incident, but it happened throughout the year and in numerous areas. In Baltimore, aerial surveillance was used and actually um, a federal court found that the aerial surveillance was unconstitutional because it it was conducted over lengthy periods um, and recording people's day-to-day activities. And here in New York City, May, Mayor Eric Adams already mentioned he would like to use drones with ShotSpotter spotter technology, which is essentially uh, microphones deployed on rooftops that attempt to flag where gunshots are occurring. And the idea is then to automatically fly off drones and having an immediate response by those robots in the sky. There's suspicious behavior detection that is intended to flag automatically when someone is conducting suspicious activity, whatever that may be, and it suffers from similar racial bias as facial recognition that is so much more inaccurate and has higher error rates for black and brown people, for women and for young people.
8: Thank you for that, Danielle. And I think that leads me to this question about like where we go from here. But I was wondering, Melanie, can you talk about the legislation that's in the works?
9: Right. Well, there, there are two proposals. You know, The Senate and Assembly bills match, S-675 and A-3311. And the, that legislation would prohibit drone surveillance of protests and other events and activities that are First Amendment-based. Uh, it would require a search warrant before drones could be used in police investigations. And it would also prohibit drones from using the facial recognition um, software. There are also um, in the bill legislation that would set rules for public access to the information. It would talk about retention and how long they're going to retain the information and what they're where they're going to store it, which is very important because of course, we would like some kind of level of security in that. And then uh, when are they going to delete the information? So um, definitely trying to pass these two pieces this session would be important because you can see from the report, the dramatic increase from 2020 to 2022 in the applications for the licensing of these drones. And so we wanna make sure that this legislation passes as quickly as possible to be able to contain the ability for these agencies to collect and store massive amounts of information about people without any regulatory control
10: so
8: Uh, thank you for that and is there anything that either of you wanted to add
10: now that we know which departments own drones and are using them and what kind of drones they are any community member should should feel motivated to approach these entities and ask for the policies and the guidelines under what they're operating those drones and they can submit their own freedom of information request. they can contact the departments and of course contacting the legislators in their local area yeah particularly in the capital region where there are so many
9: i think people should really consider uh talking to the sheriff and talking to the albany police department and certainly talking to the state police to see what their policies that are in place now are. Actually knowing what their policies and procedures are right now may influence the ability to pass the legislation that would control certain aspects of those policies and procedures.
1: So that was Elizabeth Press's report with uh, Melanie Trimble and Daniel Schwartz about their new Civil Liberties Union study on government drone use in New York. One of the interesting things, just quickly looking at their press release, is that most of the drones or actually manufactured by a company called DJI, which the United States government has blacklisted um, because of its extensive human rights abuses. Um, th- kind of thing we had a Supreme Court. They might want to step in and say that it's increasing government surveillance uh, is a concern. And just one point that they mentioned is that these drones not only you know, can be photographing you, which I think most people understand that they do but they will also increasingly have the ability to listen to what you're saying from the drones as well.
0: And this next segment is Dr. Xavier Coughlin, an organizer of the People's Health Sanctuary, an initiative of the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Xavier was interviewed by producer Lavender about the um, open house that is taking place this Saturday in the second floor of Nature Lab.
11: Hello I'm Lavender and I'm here today with Xavier. How are you today?
12: Hey how's it going? Yeah thanks for having me.
11: Thank you so much for being here and doing this. So I understand you work closely with the People's Health Sanctuary?
12: Yeah yeah I'm one of the co-facilitators for it.
11: Awesome so for those who don't know can you just give a summary of what that is?
12: Yeah, yeah, we've done um, a few interviews on the radio for the idea of the People's Health Sanctuary, but we're excited that on Saturday, on the 3rd of December from 11 to 1, we're going to be hosting our first of a series of what we call like soft openings. So, our first open house to reintroduce the idea and the space to the community. And the idea of the People's Health Sanctuary kind of comes from a lot of different kind of networks, but from the sanctuary's perspective, came from a group meeting uh, they had in i believe 2019 or 2018 kind of trying to get a, a needs assessment from the community about what things that the sanctuary could help respond to and one idea that came out was this idea of uh like responding to trauma or some place to kind of address trauma and its connection to health and uh, at the same time my partner and i were working on developing a, a co- what we call like a community health space or, or community healing space and so now, um, three, almost three and a half years later, we're excited to have the first opening of, uh, what we hope will be a community led health space. And we like to describe it as let, you know, when, when I say health, most people think clinic, but like less clinic and more like a grandmother's living room. <laughs> this idea of a place that you could have the connection between Western medicine and myself. I work as an ER doctor at Samaritan hospital okay. um, and these kind of old, more, Traditional ways of healing, you know, what is now labeled as like alternative healing or holistic healing or, you know, whatever kind of label that modern society puts on Um, these old ways of being. um, Some people call it grandmother's wisdom, which I kind of like. Um, Mm -hmm. But these, all these intangible ways that health is created through a a way of being in the world in contrast to say the Western model where it's the health is merely the absence of a problem, absence of a disease. Um, And so how do we blend the two together and create a space that kind of can help facilitate what we would call as like an overall wellness or an overall health.
11: That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Cool. So can you uh, tell me how long you've been with the People's Health Sanctuary and some of the things that you've personally worked on, some initiatives and or maybe what what has been your favorite part of joining
12: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, You know, I've been part of the sanctuary, I guess, like the larger collective group of the sanctuary for the last maybe three or four years. Um, And it really was introduced to the sanctuary, I think, the summer before the pandemic. So kind of before the world really changed. But yeah, I mean, for me, the the and and then since then, we've been trying to create this network of people interested in healing and health and practices, as well as practitioners, be it you know Western medicine or holistic uh, alternative practitioners. And really trying to create that network, and so we started doing um, monthly uh, like pop-up sessions before the pandemic when we could still meet in person, doing uh, uh, you know some health education as well as some you know one was uh, looking at herbal teas and how to make like your own herbal tea kind of remedies, and then over the pandemic, especially in the the heat of the pandemic, uh, we did a, a many Zoom calls, kind of Zoom events, right. um, looking at. How, how different aspects of health, such as like the opiate crisis was being affected by the pandemic, different um, health disparities, you know, especially racial and class disparities were, um, worsened by the pandemic. Um, and then even we helped collaborate with the, um, kind of growing psilocybin action network in uh, the capital region to just host a forum to discuss the new thoughts around kind of psychedelics and, and hallucinogens. So that was a really fun one. But for me, the best things have been. Uh, these in-person events. Uh, And we did a a Black August event uh, a few years ago in the beginning of the pandemic. That was an outdoor event and was really kind of collaboration of a large protest that was happening at the same time, as well as a lot of community-based efforts that people were working with, uh, as well as being youth-led, which felt really, um, really powerful to be part of.
11: Wow, that's really cool, yeah. So you've been there for a a while now, and I guess the pandemic has been going on for a while now, which is- Yeah,
12: unfortunately. (laughs)
11: Um. Yeah, so it's exciting that you're doing more in-person things now. So do you want to talk more about the specifics of this open house and why people yeah, absolutely. should go?
12: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thank you so much for highlighting um, highlighting the space. And, you know, I, I like to begin talking about it. Um, I've was. i I've been very influenced by the Zapatistas, which is a, an indigenous-led uh, group and resistance down in southern Mexico. And when I went there to visit, they, they have this phrase, walking while questioning um and this idea of um to keep moving forward but to keep reflecting and to keep questioning what what we're doing and how we're doing it and so that's that's how we view or that's how i view this, the people's health Sanctuary as a space for us to experiment what a new way of health could be and i think you know for myself working in a hospital during the pandemic it's clear that this way of health care that we have is wholly inadequate for for our problems as they exist now, but also for the problems that are are to come, and I'm sure anybody who has had to deal with an insurance company or had to wait in a waiting room for eight hours um, can attest to that. Um, I sure disparity. can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, um, that's only going to keep getting worse as the people in charge of our healthcare system, you know, attempt to make more and more money off of our suffering. Um, and and you know, then you have the wellness community that has a lot of, um, it, it, it is very holistic, but it's also very exclusive um, where it's, you know, thousands of dollars for these retreats and it's actually very inaccessible. And, and unfortunately there is a lot of appropriation from different cultures. And um, mm-hmm. so we wanna walk that blend, you know, that balance of what could it look like for an accessible holistic health while also addressing the very real material needs that probably will have to be dealt with by by a a Western system or or a system that has hospitals and large institutions. And so on Saturday from uh, 11 to one on the third, we invite folks to the second floor of the Nature Lab, uh, which is part of the Sanctuary Campus, and to help uh, us introduce the space to each other and and to the community, um, the local community, as well as the larger regional capital district community and to start dreaming together. So we're going to have a dream board where people can put, you know, what would a health space look like for you? And what what are things that you would like to see? As well as we'll have food, uh, vegetarian chili and and some cornbread, something comfy for the cold. And uh, we're excited to be collaborating with two groups, um, Chasing Health with Dr. Tina, who's going to be doing blood pressure checks. And they're an amazing group in the Capital District that uses um, uh, healthcare professionals and institutions to collaborate with uh, in, or communities that exist to talk about blood pressure as a way to start talking about health in general. And then we're also excited to be working with LiveFit with uh, Olivia Frempong, um, who's going to be doing African dance and African beat um, sessions, so two 20-minute dance sessions. And and we think this is, this is a great collaboration uh, and a great way to highlight maybe the blend of things that we're going to be talking about. You know, you have blood pressure on one hand, and then you have dance, which most people don't think of as health. But, you know could be viewed as like physical activity um, but also connecting it to different traditions historically um, as a way to to heal yourself and to heal a community and uh, we'll be having uh, things for kids to do and uh, to walk through the space so we're very excited to be having this first one um, and then uh, our second one will likely be in february kind of you know seeing how the pandemic shapes and moves through the winter but we hope people can come and uh, if you can't come, uh, but you'd like to be part of the the network, you can um, go to healthsanctuary.org, and on there you can sign up for our mailing list, um, and we'll keep you abreast of all different things to come.
11: Wow, this this all sounds really cool. I I personally can't attend, and I'm sad that I can't because uh yeah, this sounds awesome, and we, you know we're all part of this insane healthcare system, so I'm sure there will be something that everyone can appreciate you know learning about different ways of healing and i and i love that you've incorporated something like dance which like you said isn't necessarily seen as something related to health but it absolutely is and yeah, um, totally. i think it's great what you guys are doing and yeah the healthcare system is a mess i could i could rant yeah. about it for days um yeah.
10: But yeah, just this
11: morning, yeah, I was reading some uh, a sad story about someone who just went to emergency surgery and is in a lot of pain, and she's you know been struggling to get a refill on some on a prescription, and yeah. you know we definitely need to explore other ways to to heal and yeah, just make it less about the money and more about the people and, and our health. So
12: yeah,
11: yeah, I really love what you're doing. Is there anything else you want to add? to leave people with?
12: No, and yeah, I invite you all to come on Saturday. Um, and as we grow this kind of network and and we really like to think of it that we're uh, just one small piece in a river of different practices and community building that exists in this capital district um, that has been very humbling and very inspiring to learn about and, and know. So we look forward to however you think about health and think about your ways of being in the world um, that we're all relating to each other's health and so we're all going to need each other um, as we move forward in this uh, crazy, wild world we find ourselves in.
11: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Xavier, for being here and sharing more information about this. We really appreciate Great. it.
12: Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for the time. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to chatting more.
1: Awesome. So that was Dr. Xavier Coughlin, uh, talking with uh, Lavender, the open house for the People's Health Sanctuary is this Saturday, December 3rd from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., second floor of the Nature Lab building. As I said, food, blood pressure checks, African dance, child care, and a dream board to collectively image, imagine the future of the space. Uh, you can find out more info on our website, mediasanctuary.org.
0: And now we head to Blue Mountain Center, which supports writers, artists, and activists in Blue Mountain Lake, New York. That's up in the Adirondacks. And the Sanctuary Board and staff, we were fortunate to be invited for a weekend retreat earlier this month. And I headed to the library to speak with the program managers. We're sitting among these shelves of books in this old log house in the Adirondacks, the Blue Mountain Center, The books, a lot of them have this brown tape on it from former residencies. And to tell us more where we are, I'm now joined by...
13: Ryan Felder, a program manager here at Blue Mountain Center.
14: And Mary Wang, also the program manager at Blue Mountain Center. So what is Blue Mountain Center?
13: Um, I think to me, Blue Mountain Center is a kitchen. um, And with that kitchen, we're able... And this wonderful house in the middle of Adirondacks, we're able to provide hospitality to activists, artists, writers, playwrights, musicians, and just community organizers from all different backgrounds of life, um, able to provide them with a place to sleep, three meals a day, um, provide them with access to the Adirondacks and all of the nature that that entails and provide them with a community so where they can focus on their work, um, meet each other, have fun, rest, um, reconnect with themselves and their work. And we get to do that here and facilitate that process at Blue Mountain Center. So that's kind of what it is. And for me, that definitely all just revolves around the kitchen and kind of, it's kind of like the heart of BMC, I would say.
0: This idea of of resting and reflecting feels very anti-capitalist and I think not something that a lot of people are able to afford in their lives. So maybe few people who are listening to this have actually experienced the retreat. Can you talk about the importance of these spaces and how they improve the quality of our work?
14: Yeah, BMC really focuses, especially in recent years, on rest and rejuvenation being as important as the concept of productivity and also just taking a step back to think about the work that's being done. We recognize that a lot of people who come to us are very burnt out in the work that they do. All of the work, including by artists and writers and composers um, and, of course, the activists are all centered around social justice. And in this ongoing, tense climate, a lot of them really do need that space to just feel rejuvenated, to to reconnect, to think about what their goals are, and to really feel supported because sustainability is so crucial to all of these movements.
0: And I understand that there was a recent reflection where even though this is a free residency, that was not enough to make it accessible for all people. Um, could you talk more about that and, and who you're trying to open it up to? Yeah.
14: Yeah. In recent years, we've been thinking about, um, outreach specifically to residents of color, people of color who really desperately need a space to be rejuvenated and rested and focus on their work. A lot of traditional retreat spaces, even especially in the artist residency world, tend to be very white centered. Um, not only in that outreach tend to be pre- to predominantly white folks, but also that barriers, especially economic, are very much tied to systemic racism, and a lot of that can prevent folks from accessing spaces like these. Even though we're lucky enough to offer free residencies, the actual cost of coming to a residency includes much more than um, one might expect you know, for folks who have to leave their jobs for a month, there's still rent to pay, there's still bills to pay, there might be childcare costs, there might be other lost costs of taking time away. And we're trying to think about that more intentionally. And one of the ways we've done that is by creating a resident support fund. This was actually created by alumni who came here and were very interested in bringing more people of color to Blue Mountain Center. And it's entirely donor-supported by people who really want to offer the gift of Blue Mountain Center to more people of color.
0: So there are two main ways of residency. There's the month-long residency and the weekend for organizations. How much of a structure is provided from the center, and how much does each individual or organization bring themselves?
13: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, Typically, with weekend conferences and what we call focused residencies, which are about a week long, um, we kind of hand over the keys of Blue Mountain Center to the organizers to do with what they'd like. We still some basic stuff like meals and logistics and hospitality and innkeeping that we provide. And that's the case with the month long residencies as well. Um, though we'll, me and Mary in particular, and Ben, our director, um, and Nika, our assistant director, will be more involved with the residencies more typically. So we still like to have like a blank slate approach. We don't like to be too prescriptive when people arrive. It's really fun just to see what residents make of the place. And I like to refer to the other things that we do as like traditions at BMC of taking people on long day long excursions or hikes or forest floors walk. And there's things that always come up. Um, throughout the month as well. Parties facilitating kind of events, um, celebrations, different types of work sharing. We have lots of events called presentations where residents share out their work after dinner. And that's something that's kind of stays the same throughout each residency. But each one ends up looking a little different with some familiar contours, which, which I think are always kind of nice. And when people return to Bloom Mountain Center, people come back residents come back as alum there's some familiarity to the space always for them as well so it's not always completely new but definitely lots of room for spontaneity
0: thank you so much ryan and mary what else do you think is really important to understand about blue mountain center
13: i was just talking we were just talking about this in the office um we would like Blue Mountain Center to be a place where you can show up and not need to perform or not need to know about certain conversations and discourses and even know what discourse means or something like that. Or we would like, yeah, I think we're working at George, like providing like a space that you can come and learn. You can teach others if you like, but also not be expected to teach. We yeah, and that's a like a collaborative effort, and something we're wanting to co-articulate with our guests. So, I think if there's anything that I would want you to know, listener, about Blue Mountain Center, um, that if you apply and you come, and we're really looking forward to working with you and learning with you, and this to be a place for you and to be a part of like this great kind of community and this like tradition of Blue Mountain Center communities have, come and work with us, I think is the, or, or not, if you don't want to.
0: <laughs> Do you want to give a little description of this place? What are listeners missing by not sitting here in this library with us, overlooking a lake with pine trees surrounded by fog?
14: Dang, I think you got a lot of the description here. But yes, in a 15 bedroom mansion, um fishing bedroom lodge i should say that was built in the late 1800s we sit with i think 26 miles of hiking trails on the property and in front of the beautiful lake known as eagle lake um, where some days you can just spend hours on the lake just canoeing with the sun on your back and trying not to fall asleep and watching all the birds of the lake dive in and out And occasionally seeing a couple of fishing boats one of which might include Ryan (laughs) and just laying out on the dock if you're not feeling like you want a boat but still being able to experience the water in that way or just taking a little hike walking around and just seeing the meadows. I think the beauty is whatever season you come to Blue Mountain Center there's always something beautiful to look at, whether that's the fall foliage or even the turn into winter or the beautiful green of the spring and the early summer.
1: So I've, I've been to the Blue Mountain Center four or five times. It is an incredibly beautiful place to avoid the black flies in early summer. You can find out more at www.bluemountaincenter.org. Uh, we also have a great event taking place at the Sanctuary on Thursday, December 1st. Shannon Mufti will talk about his book, American Caliph, about the 1977 Hanafi Siege on Washington, D.C. Uh, the, full, the full interview by Steve Pierce is now available at mediasanctuary.org.
0: And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Pazila-Hickey.
1: And I'm Mark Dunley, our engineer as always, uh, Sina Basile-Hickey. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this possible, uh, including myself, Moses, E.P., and Lavender. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.